Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 70, Susan Piver, the Fearless Writer. Susan Piver, New York Times bestselling author and meditation teacher, joins us to discuss her journey as a popular author and Buddhist practitioner. She also describes the unique retreats that she leads, Meditation for Writers, where writers of all backgrounds combine their passion for writing with the power of the retreat environment. This is part one of a two-part series. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. This is Ryan Olke, and we're back with another geeky episode for you. I'm here today, as always, with my co-host, Vince Horn. Hello. Yeah, we're with a geek that has many facets of geekiness under her belt. Oh, yes. She was just telling us she's the geekiest person she knows. But she's a non-geek. She's not like a technical you know, wizard, but you're also pretty geeky. I'm pretty she twitters, geeky. okay? Yeah, yeah. And if you don't know what that means, then see, that proves that she's a geek <laughs> along with us. Exactly. And she also blogs uh, over her website, susanpiver.com. And, and I'll a just, blog on top I know. of it. Man, the geek points are adding up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud. <laughs> and I'll just mention a couple other things about Susan. She's a meditation teacher in the Shambhala tradition. And she teaches often uh, meditation retreats for writers, which we'll be talking about today. Um, she also is a writer. She has a New York Times bestselling book out a while back and uh, appeared on Oprah a couple times, I believe. And so she's no stranger to uh, to media type thing. So hopefully sure. we won't, uh, she, she definitely is going to own us on this interview. <laughs> <laughs> that's my goal. <laughs> and... Uh, I also mentioned her new book that's out. It's more along the, your first book was more about marriage and about asking hard questions about um, before you get married, what are are some things you want to ask yourself? Exactly. (laughs) And her newest book is more along the lines of meditation work, it looks like, and it's it's called How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. So maybe if you want to just say a little bit about your book first and what what that was on and, and what that process was like for you writing it. Sure. How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. Or my father, when I first told him about it, thought it was called How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably another best-selling book. He's, that's exactly what he said. I said, And I said, I'm not giving any secrets away. Uh-oh. Sorry. Um, anyway, <clears throat> yeah, the book is a, a result for me of my Buddhist practice. And I had never really written a book so directly about what I had learned as a student. So it's really about what it's like to be a student of Buddhism and try to bring those lessons to everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, your work, your relationships, you're watching too much TV, you're mm-hmm. trying to eat a healthy diet, whatever it is that we all have as part of our everyday life, what what happens when that all of that meets practice? And the reason it's called How Not to Be Afraid is because I just noticed, as I'm sure you did, that when you engage in practice, it's not like you're not afraid anymore of anything, mm-hmm. but fear becomes much more of a sort of a noble um, adversary and mm-hmm. much more workable. Mm-hmm. And so the book is divided into main, the three main sections are the, of the book are how not to be afraid of yourself, which the antidote is gentleness, which is certainly cultivated through meditation practice, mm-hmm. and how not to be afraid of others, the antidote for which is delight. Mm-hmm. And when you can be gentle with yourself, you can sort of afford to take delight in others. And it, it just happens naturally anyway, like mm-hmm. from any kind of bodhicitta practice, when you sort of calm your own situation, mm-hmm. almost like Hinayana to Mahayana sort of 
progression. Mm-hmm. Your heart just opens to other people, which makes you less afraid of them. And then how not to be afraid of life is the third part, mm-hmm. which is built on lack of fear of self and of others. You develop a kind of confidence that's very soulful, to use a non-Buddhist word. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can meet your life. So that's, to me, the direct connection between meditation practice and fearlessness. You know, I find interesting. I finally had a chance to head to the bookstore and, and check out your book. And um, I was assuming that it was going to be, uh, since you're being so popularized and you're being on these very big media outlets and people talking to you about this, um, that it was going to be ma- more of a mainstream kind of self-help psychology book. But I was really impressed with how much Buddhist teachings were explicitly in there, which was really interesting to me um, to see that so many people are are really resonating with that on a large level, you know, and the book is so popular. I think that's very interesting. Well, thank you. And yeah, to me, that's like my gig. That's for me, if I could, that's like what I live to do and what I want to do. Mm. And there's no reason that the six paramitas can't be there's no reason that nobody owns generosity and patience and discipline oh, and totally. et cetera. And when you just explain it, you know, generosity, for example, not just meaning being super nice and giving all your stuff away all the time, but mm-hmm. having a little more nuance than that. Mm. It's not religious, obviously, right, or, right. or spiritual, even particularly. It's just useful. Right. And so it. Do, I think in our world of practitioners who are also trying to work in the media right there's a sense that you have to choose between popularizing something right which means dumbing it down yes right (laughs) or being like super intellectual academic who has like a lot of visualization medals you know (laughs) on their lapel or something (laughs) but you don't have to choose their are more choices than that. And I think it's actually, in my mind, it's sort of an act of aggression to think you have to do one of those. Yeah. So I think it's um, really cool the angle that you've taken. We've talked with Alan Wallace before, and uh, he's done a really neat job of uh, popularizing or getting into mainstream the practice of meditation by kind of taking a scientific perspective on it. And you're bringing out different qualities of the teachings. Like you talked about generosity uh, but bringing in real teachings, not just uh, dumbing it down. So I think that's cool. That That's what I was thinking. Like, you're very unique in that sense. There's been plenty, been plenty of books out there that have been popularized, but I think you're you're tracking a new kind of angle of the teachings that are being brought into people's lives. Well, thank you. And I think for us, we're students, right? So yeah. student, it's always interesting to me to hear a student's perspective of what it's like to do what they've been taught. Mm. And so that's, I feel very comfortable with that voice Mm. of I, this is what I have been taught and this is how I used it. And this is what it meant to me. I think, I mean, this is, I'm exaggerating, but I think it's, I feel almost an obligation. I feel like it is almost an obligation Mm. to speak as a student, not as in a proselytizing vibe, obviously by any means, but just why not? Right. It's people. Why not? It's, it's important. Yeah. I wonder, does that help? I was going to ask a question about just the, the level of relative success you've had with the work you've done and, and how you've dealt with that as a Buddhist student. And uh, I'm wondering 
uh, we were thinking about the eight worldly concerns where one of them, one of the pairs is fame and disrepute and how those things are just, they just kind of, they kind of just happen. There's not a whole lot of personal influence that can sometimes uh, impact the impersonal nature of the way things unfold. And I'm wondering how you've worked with that uh, during the time that you've uh, become, you know, more relatively successful with the work that you've been doing. I'm sure it's been a, an issue or something that's been on your mind. Well, it's largely, it's, I appreciate the question and it's, it's largely a non-issue because I just go to work and whatever. But that, that said, um, when my book, I was a practitioner when my book hit the New York Times bestseller list and it hit in a very kind of big way in the sense that it didn't sort of pop up on the lower end and hang there for a week or two and then disappear. It really hit way up there and it hung out there for several months and I, that is when I um, said I I I need to go to seminary in you know Shambhala lineage. Mm. I need to st- I need to deepen my practice immediately mm. because it was really funny. I I wrote a book about relationships as you mentioned, mm. and suddenly I was getting phone calls <laughs> asking my opinion about other people's relationships. Like mm. Britney Spears in Us Magazine. I got a call from Us Magazine wanting to quote me as a relationships expert on what she might be going through wow. in her breakup with Justin. Wow. <laughs> very, very important things here. Well, and actually it was, it really, I was like, so you could go one of two ways with something like that. You could go, I don't have anything to say about that. Mm-hmm. Britney Schmidtney. I, you know, I don't partake of that world. Right. Or you could say, or, you know, I don't know anything. I don't have anything to say. Mm. I'm not a relationships expert. Right. Or you could say, clearly I have something of importance to say to the people of America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I better, and I need to say it. You know, neither of those are true. Mm. The only thing that is useful is, and and I thought about this actually, because that was like weird. What is, what am I, Us Magazine is calling me? I thought, well, is there anything uh, that I can say that I think would genuinely be of use? Right, right. Yeah, that's... Great. And if so, I would like to say it. But can I avoid the, I'm a schmo and I don't have anything to say, uh-huh. and I have great things of importance that the people of America must hear? Can I do it without thinking you know, either of those things? Yeah, like the two opposite self-views, like one is I'm... I'm not important. The others, I'm really important. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, exactly. That's interesting. You were mentioning the obligation piece earlier, and I've often wondered about that. If someone's in a position where they can genuinely contribute something, um, there seems to be some sort of obligation that goes along with that. That's not really a personal thing. It's like, oh, I'm in this position. Maybe I should do my best to offer something useful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. And it also, you can be creative about it in the sense that, if you just sort of go us people, okay, big X, no, cut cut all that out. You know, it's a, you can be a little more creative than that. You can sort of think somehow. I've been presented with this question: What does it mean to have a broken heart? Mm-hmm. Which is sort of how I chose to look at the question from us, <laughs> and I, uh, I would like to answer that question. I would like to try to answer that question. Not like, here's what it means and here's what you should do, but it's a powerful thing and it can make you crazy. And, you know, whatever it is you might say, 
that there is wisdom in it as well. You don't have to be super academic to understand that. Well, we were we were really interested in uh, in the work that you do with the meditation for writers, and um, I love that so much. Yeah, and so we were we were really wanting to know how how does the work you do with the retreats, um, how does the meditation process inform the writing process, and and vice versa? How does the writing process inform the meditation process? Mm. Well, I really appreciate the question, and I, yeah. I started, I got the idea to, to teach meditation and writing together. When I was on a lengthy retreat several years ago at Shambhala Mountain Center, I was doing a, a month-long Datun program, and I also was on a book deadline. And so I had to get special dispensation in the final week to leave the retreat from like 11 to 3 to write. So I would get up with the morning practice at 7, and then I would leave at 11 and work through lunch and the lunch break and then rejoin everyone at 3 so and practice again until, you know, 9 o'clock at night or whatever. And it was the best writing experience of my life. Normally in my everyday life, I struggle to practice for 20 minutes a day and write, you know, 500 words. Right. But I was practicing for like six hours a day and writing thousands of words with just this incredible sense of uh, precision and mm. joy. So I thought, well, this is, this is these are a good combination. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good combination. Yeah, it was, it, it's interesting when you were saying that. I just remembered on the last retreat I was at Spirit Rock. It was a two-month course and Jack Cornfield. I kept seeing him. He wasn't teaching the first month. I kept seeing him in the dining hall, and I was like, huh, I wonder what Jack's doing here. And I later find out, found out he spends a month doing a writing retreat oh, in no a cabin, oh, and then cool. he teaches a month right after that. And I suspect, actually, that there are other people who maybe uh, good you know, writers and teachers in this tradition that have figured out that combo is a real good one. Yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if you meditate and you write about whatever, I think you probably couldn't help but notice that there's... So I started doing in my everyday life... I practice in the morning, as you know, usually, and then write three pages of longhand free writing. This thing that I read about in a book called *The Artist's Way* by Julia Cameron, which is a great book. Mm. And then I write, and it's great. And so that's all the retreat is. It's practicing, depending on the uh, experience level of the group, for a shorter or longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Writing together in the same room, just stream of consciousness. Mm. And then you can go wherever you want, set up wherever you want for like two and a half to three hours of your personal writing. Mm. So you're in a retreat container mm-hmm. and you're with a community, but you're also, you know, in sitting back in your room or you can stay in the program room or you can sit outside or you can go wherever you want and do your personal work and then stop is as important a component as anything right right. stop practice some more eat lunch practice some more and another period of writing Mm. and then in the evenings we one or to three people depending how big the group is reads their work Mm. and we all discuss it together Uh, and so it's for five days and so it just sort of rolls like a snowball and it's uh i'm I don't know how I hit on this formula of these three things, mm. 
but it totally works and I don't have to be the one that teaches it. It has nothing to do with me. It's just sort of a formula of things that when you do them, your voice comes out. Mm. It's awesome. Mm. And I get to do so much writing myself. So I really love it. Nice. Yeah. I've been thinking about the same thing, wondering how that kind of retreat would work. And, uh, partly it was my kind of compartmentalizing of things too, that I was questioning, uh, like, well, no, I should only do retreat and then only do writing. That's good too. And yeah, it seems like that has purpose too. But I also was wondering though, is there, what kind of benefits are there in combining them? Because there seems like there's a lot and it sounds like from your own experience there, it's a great way to, to maybe they have a relationship where it enhances both sides of things, both your practice and the writing, or is it maybe just towards the writing? I think both personally, Mm -hmm. because they're really just about your voice and your um, inner experience Mm. and seeing it more clearly Mm. because writing without that clear seeing is kind of, I see mm, gawky. Right. And so when you want to write, you want to speak, you want to communicate and you want access to that voice and meditation it would be a mistake to say this is a tool for me to access that voice because it would be sort of shortchanging right. the sacredness of the practice. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it does create alignment in your life in all ways. Mm-hmm. So that would include your creative work. And mm-hmm. when you think about it, um, you know, music's a good example because mm-hmm. if you're playing guitar say in a band and they're improvising you the musician you can't take your mind off your instrument for one second or you just you know hit a wrong chord or right but nor can you stop listening to what's happening around you even Mm -hmm. for one second because you you get lost right so it's the simultaneous connection with yourself and panoramic awareness that is the exact same skill as meditation there's no difference Mm. it's a focus and awareness and when you're writing as i'm sure you know and you if you write too you need the 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 focus that's required is so precise and so intense right nonetheless you have to be you have to open up and let go Mm -hmm. you don't know what you're going to say so you have to wait Mm -hmm. and you have to also focus very clearly and then this constant interplay between those Mm. two is not different than meditation. So I don't even think yeah. that they help each other. I am convinced that they are not different from each other. Ah, you're doing the same thing when you're doing mm. them, in a sense. Obviously, meditation you know, is the ground for other practices. But nonetheless, there's similarities. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, 
abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.